Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this Tuesday morning edition of uh, Real Talk. Let me tell you how cool it is. First of all, Sam Brooks and I, uh, Sam, the senior producer of this show, as you know, uh, keeping an eye on our YouTube uh, on our YouTube channel as, as uh, basically everybody gears up for 8.30 Mountain Time. And uh, how cool is it? I, I know that here in Alberta, we believe, as a matter of fact, here in Western Canada, we know that we do have the most beautiful mountains in, in the entire world. I don't think anyone will dispute that. With apologies to Nepal and, and all the other regions that have decent mountains, uh, but you might also see a similar argument from the good folks uh, down in the great state of Utah. And ha- a shout out uh, to Mark B. in SLC, who tunes in, streams us live every morning from Salt Lake City, Utah. The shout out for Mark, because he was the very first to check in, the very second to check in, is one of Canada's rising stars uh, in the area of planning. Kalen Kufajanakis is tuned in this morning, streaming us live from Vancouver. How cool is that? And then we see all of our viewers and listeners like Jeff and, and, and Fatima and Chris and Bosno and Glenn and Blind Melon, all of them just popping in. Cindy just popping in right now. Ida, Cam in a pizzeria. Judy's ready to go. Everybody just saying good morning. There is community coming together here on Real Talk every single morning right at 8.30 Mountain Time, and we're super excited about that. Today's show intentionally, out of the gates, or at least coming up around 8.40, is a reminder that Real Talk doesn't always mean getting the big-name politicians. It doesn't always mean getting the executive directors and the CEOs and the general managers. Sometimes people in positions of leadership, people with lived experience, people on the front lines aren't the ones in front of the cameras. They're not the ones who have their voices amplified. Well, coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to check in with the principal a principal of a rural school who says he's all but fed up with the situation down there, says our staff, our students have been remarkable in the midst of COVID-19, but with things going sideways, he's had, well, he's had enough to the point where he's going to go on camera and he's going to let us know exactly what it looks like down in Delburn. Looking forward to that conversation coming up with Principal Ted Hutchings. We're also going to welcome Max Fawcett to the program today. We're going to talk about Canada's middle class. Melissa Cowett, a conservative strategist, will join us. She's undertaking what she's calling her pandemic passion project. She's tracing and mapping the evolution of conservative politics in the UK, the US and Canada. We thought it might be a a perfect time to check in with Melissa. Um, That's going to be a great conversation. And have you heard you know, we talk news, politics and pop culture. This, I think, qualifies for two of the three, just not politics. But the Wayne Gretzky rookie card rumored to be selling for over a million dollars this week. Have you been following this story? Uh, we're going to check in with one of Canada's preeminent experts on sports memorabilia when Wayne Wagner joins us right near the end of the broadcast today. He's going to show us some of the most valuable cards in his collection and tell us exactly why that Gretzky rookie is worth seven figures. You may have one in your possession. Some of you may be looking back to when you were seven years old and you were putting that Wayne Gretzky rookie card in between the spokes of your bike to make it sound like a motorcycle. And now you're just, oh my gosh, you can barely live with yourself. Before we get the show started, we want to let you know we wouldn't be here without the support of the amazing team at Bitcoin Well. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to divulge something. This is a little personal. But I finally decided to take the plunge. That's right. We're going to get into the Bitcoin game a little bit. And I trust this team to help me, first of all, understand it 
And second of all, make it a seamless transition. So if this is something that's catching your attention, don't take your investment advice from me. I'm just saying, I'm intrigued by it. I'm going to get into the game. If you want to as well, we're putting our stamp of approval on Bitcoin while proudly based out of Edmonton. You can check out the sponsors link at ryanjesperson.com if you want to learn more about what they do. Sam, we got a jam-packed show today. Let's get it rolling. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're going to tell you out of the gates that uh, we'll be following uh, our news sources and social media as well. Plus, uh, I mean, obviously, official government communications uh, citizens in Alberta today uh, expect to see the rumors in the hallways uh, are indicating that there may be an announcement today about further measures coming with regards to. I mean, you use the word lockdown. It's such a loaded word, isn't it? But in the province of Alberta, we know that we're bracing ourselves for numbers to spike. Uh, medical professionals very concerned about hospital capacity and the health of our citizens, most especially those in long-term care centers. So that's a story we're keeping an eye on today. Expect new measures announced by the government of Alberta at some point, potentially today, certainly this week. That's coming up. This was Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health, just yesterday afternoon. However, the continued rise in new cases and hospitalizations underscores the seriousness of the situation we now face. I will be blunt. So far, we are not bending the curve back down. We are still witnessing very high transmission of the virus, which is putting enormous pressure on our hospitals, intensive care units, and healthcare workers. It is also putting tremendous strain on our continuing care facilities and many other sectors. Healthcare workers in hospitals and continuing care facilities, as well as those leading important public health work like contact tracing and outbreak management, have been on the front lines working hard for many months. I know that many are exhausted. We must do all we can to protect them, especially during this period when COVID-19 is spreading rapidly and more patients are being admitted into hospital. My team and I are monitoring this situation very closely. We are now in the ninth month of this pandemic. I am more concerned than ever before about the spread of this virus. Every one of us needs to be a part of the response and we need to come together to protect each other. So there you have it, uh, says Dr. Dina Hinshaw yesterday. I am more concerned than ever about the spread of this virus. I am more concerned than ever more than last february more than last march more than june more than august more than ever more than last week when the numbers started to jump by approximately 17 to 1800 new cases every single day now 20,000 cases in the province of alberta alone we look at manitoba we look at other uh, regions in canada that are having their own struggles and alberta's chief medical officer of health i am more concerned now than ever now, ultimately, it's not up to her, and we've talked about this, and, and Dr. Dina Hinshaw is, has potentially been, and, and boy, I can't wait when this is all said and done. I mean, period. I can't wait when this is all said and done. But one of the things I'm really looking forward to is Dr. Dina Hinshaw's book. You're going, has she announced she's writing a book? No, she hasn't. But if I'm a literary agent, 
I'm already on my third email to Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who is just filing those emails away. She's not concerning herself with that right now. This is all speculative, obviously. Don't start tweeting this out. I mean, if you are going to use the hashtag RealTalkRJ powered by Park Power, but don't hold off for now. When she says, I am more concerned now than ever, she's sending a message to the citizens of Alberta. She's also sending a message to government. Really, what she's doing, right, is putting government on the spot. She's putting government in the spotlight. She's saying, as the chief medical officer of health in the province with the highest numbers of COVID-19 by a mile, I am more concerned now than ever. So you look at the numbers. They're wild. We look what's going to happen one week. 10 days, 14 days from now, buckle up in the worst way and maybe start to change your habits a little bit. I'm not being judgy. I'm just saying, boy, was that ever a great interview yesterday on the show with Aaron Ross, wasn't it? With the painter, Aaron Ross. Did you see that? If not, obviously, you know where you can find it on our YouTube channel. You can find the audio, obviously, on our podcast, which you can subscribe to anywhere. And thank you, by the way, for pushing us past 75,000 downloads yesterday. That was a big milestone for us. We had just posted that we were at 50,000. And then, boy, did you ever rise up and fill our spirits. A lot of people are interested in these interviews. Erin Ross basically owned her own, what word do I use? Uh, I don't want to say negligence. Uh, watch the interview for yourself. She basically said, my sister, her sister's a physician. She says, my sister told me that I better check myself. I didn't. I contracted COVID, I underestimated it, it kicked my ass, and ultimately my sister was right. I mean, that was kind of the summary of her interview with us. So if you missed that one, you're going to want to check it out. We're also going to bring you some conversation, as mentioned today, we're going to talk politics with with Max Fawcett and Melissa Cowett. I would imagine the two of them probably have different politics themselves, but we're going to talk about the state of conservative politics. People are talking about the Overton window. There's a lot of conversation about things like the Great Reset, uh, yesterday, my member of parliament in Edmonton Center, James Cumming, talked about a dystopian future under the liberals where they're coming after your savings accounts. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. People are looking at the state of the Republican Party in the United States, and these are honorable, respectable, and respected conservatives that are going, hey, the future of our party better look more visionary, better look more grounded, reasonable, and attractive to the non-committed voter than it does right now. So how do we get there? Well, we'll talk to those two who, you know, I respect both of their perspectives a great deal, but I also want to bring you some video from the United States. Sam, you know which one I'm looking for. Can we load this up? I'm going to bring, this guy's one of my favorite actors and you're going to go seriously, honestly, Ryan, you're going to roll political takes from, from the Hollywood elite, from Hollywood actors. Hang on a second. All right. All right. All right. Hang on a second. I can do a better McConaughey if I really try but I'd rather just get to the clip. The guy's from Texas, makes a lot of money in Hollywood, but he finds himself in the middle of the road. And I'm going to bring you a portion of two different interviews, not both right now. We'll sprinkle them into the broadcast before 1030, right? One with Russell Brand, the comedian on his podcast, Under the Skin. The other with an interviewer from Time Magazine for the Time 100, and McConaughey it has the same theme, delivered it in two different ways. And I wanted to bring you this. When we talk about the left and the right, and we talk about the polarizing nature of, uh, of everything from party politics, Twitter communication, even talk shows. Well, this show's built a little bit differently. 
If you're on the far left, there's a chance you're going to hear some things you really like on this show, and there's a chance you're going to hear some things that drive you crazy. Same goes if you're on the far right. Some of our guests you'll love, some of them you'll probably be feeling really challenged by. That's the idea. We're keeping it real. And Matthew McConaughey, he's got something going on between his ears, obviously. And he's focusing on, on the divisive nature of not just politics these days, but public discourse. So first, let me grab your coffee, sit back. I want to play this. We're going to play you a couple minutes of it. Here's Matthew McConaughey, Texas born and raised Hollywood actor on bringing people together. Somebody said to me that it's, oh, yeah, it meets you in the middle. You know, you know, it's in the middle of the road, McConaughey, yellow lines and dead armadillos. <laughs> I said, let me tell you something. But I said, I'm, I'm walking down the yellow line right now, and the armadillos are running free, having a great time. I said, you know why? I said, the other two sides, the two, <laughs> the two vehicles on either side of the political aisle are so far apart, their fucking tires aren't even on the pavement anymore. <laughs> I mean, so trust me, it's, it's free over here. There's plenty of room. Yeah. You know, and I almost feel like uh, it's a move to say, no, let's get aggressively centric. I, I, I dare you. It's not a recession. It's an aggressive move. And if it's framed like that, one, I think that all that that can relate to a lot of people on the, on the right. of going, mm. well, you, you dare me? You know, it's like this COVID thing. It's like I had to go, whoa, this, 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 this enemy doesn't want hand-to-hand combat. Don't run out, <laughs> don't run out on your don't run out on the street with your with your gun and knives to try and fight this one. That's what he wants. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's actually an aggressive move to actually stay home. You know what I mean? But it had to be reframed in mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, look, on the other side, on the on the the, the 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 far left that would go, well, who do? There is a lot on that illiberal left that absolutely condescend, patronize, and are arrogant towards that other 50%. Many people were in, I'm sure you saw it, in our industry when Trump was voted in four years ago. They were in denial that it was actually, that it was real. This, and some of them went, were in absolute denial. I, and even, even now, we're going to see how we, if we can stabilize coming out of, looks like Biden's our guy. Um, well, now you've got, <laughs> now you've got the right that's in denial because they're saying it's fake news. And I understand they've been fed fake news. No one knows who the hell to believe, right? So they're putting down their last bastion of defense. Um, so, you know, that, that, that left has to see, this is the, this is, this is, I want to stay on topic, but this is where I, the, the, the left misses it for me, just as far as being a marketeer of, of, of a political side. You and you say, hey, we want to get out the vote. We want people to go be able to go vote. We're going to do a campaign to let people vote. I'm like, 100%. Yes, everyone. Is there anyone who would say no to that? That's universal. You have 100% of the audience going, I'm in. That's a constitutional right as an American. I'm in. Yes. And then they can't help themselves. At the very end of it, they go, so we don't let those criminal bastards get back in office. You're, going, Whoa. You're like, no, don't say the last part. You lost 50% of your audience. And that's uh, you know part of why so much of the nation of that 50% looks at us in Hollywood as like going, oh yeah, another celebrity over there on the, on the West Coasters and the elite in the Northeast. And that's what y'all say. Because even from a, just a sales point of view, don't tab that 
got you on the end. Mm. And then you have a twice, your audience is twice as big. So there you have it. Matthew McConaughey, your audience twice as big. I love the spirit of the conversation. He, he gets a little bit more cerebral uh, when he talks to, when he checks in with Time Magazine, and we're going to play that for you coming up uh, in about an hour's time, maybe 45 minutes from now. Before we get to uh, our first guest, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Principal Ted Hutchings, I uh, want to let you know how proud we are to be walking hand in hand on this journey right here with the team at Friesen Brothers. I mean, this is an Alberta institution when it comes to grocery but the stores you know if you've been into one so much different than your standard grocery store including the fact that they employ red seal chefs who make hot meals and ready to heat meals available year round but especially come holiday time christmas time if you're looking to take a load off this year and just enjoy more quality time with your family not be worrying about the turkey and mashing the potatoes and baking that sourdough bread that you always try but it's never as good as at freezing brothers why not leave it to them? 14 Alberta stores, soon to open number 15, just off the Henday at Rabbit Hill Road in Edmonton. Check out the link under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com or visit your friendly Friesen Brothers location, Alberta-grown, Alberta-owned. Let's get to our leadoff guest this morning. You know, we receive a lot of emails here at Real Talk, and you can send us an email anytime by simply uh, typing out talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's exactly what Ted Hutchings did. Uh, Ted is the principal at Delburn Centralized School. And Ted, we're thrilled that you've made time for us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Well, I'll tell you, you wrote a letter to us uh, that I, I, I was sort of, I've never met you before. This is our first time talking, and I was envisioning you just typing with 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 passion and fury uh, because it sounds like, I don't want to say it sounds like you're about to crack because it actually sounds like your team is doing an incredible job there at the Delburn School, but take us into how you're feeling and what prompted your email to the show. Well, I think more than anything, and uh you know, before I get started, uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little sheepish here coming in behind Matthew McConaughey and Friesen <laughs> Brothers. Uh, <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, I think there's a story that needs to be told around uh, the reality that schools are facing right now. It's, um, you know, uh, it's an ever-changing landscape. It's something that we've uh, we've been working through for the last nine months. And, um, you know, we're really starting to see uh, some pretty profound impacts, I think. Uh, and, and, and I don't see an end to it. And so, you know, um, am I, am I furious? No, I wouldn't say I'm furious, but uh, I, I definitely think that this is something that's uh, worth sharing. And so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, we call the show Real Talk because we want to make sure that we're not just reading press releases and talking to politicians that provide platitudes. We want to actually get a real sense of what's really going on. So what has been the source? I mean, aside from obviously the pandemic, but what is the biggest source or what has been uh, the biggest uh, source of, uh, of your challenges and of your staff and students challenges right now? What's making life most difficult? Um. So there's there's a bunch of layers to that, Ryan. I think the the bottom line is, uh, you know, for better or for worse, education is uh, is something that 
you know, we, we rely on planning, we rely on predictability, we rely on uh, knowing what's coming. I think that's, that's kind of a hallmark of, of running a good school, of running a good classroom. And uh, we've had to deal with all kinds of curveballs. Uh, so, you, you know, you track back to, to March 13th. I remember pulling my staff together. It was a Friday afternoon. And, uh, you know, I, I just said to them, I said, I, you need to be prepared that, you know, we may not be back face to face with kids on Monday. And, and uh, it, you know, it took until later on Sunday afternoon that weekend, but it, it certainly came. And, and in between, you know, there were all kinds of documents about how are you going to reopen school safely and what is that going to look like? Uh, and so since then, you know, we've been responding to, um, we've had to respond to a variety of, of things all the way through. So starting in, in June, when we got the re-entry plan, taking a look, trying to make sense of it. Uh, and then, of course, when we got into August, uh, you know, you're, you're planning for something that you've never done before. Uh, what is that going to look like with students uh, who needs to wear masks? How do we get in the building? How do we leave the building? So many things that are automatic in a school, um, you know, that that had to be reinvented. And so, um, you know, as we've moved through things, uh, more and more changes have come, obviously. And and then, of course, um, you know, we we made it through until the third week of November uh, without a you know a case where we had a positive uh, a positive case connected to the school. And then, you know, that has opened my eyes wide, wide open. Well, tell us about that experience. What, what was it about that that sort of provided this epiphany or this wake-up call? Um, I guess the bottom line is, um, you know, we were, we were well-versed, right, in terms of these are the steps you have to take before you come to school. So for staff and for, for students, uh, and our families, our staff have been amazing, very responsible, very upfront, very cautious, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, that uh, if there's any question about how you're feeling that day, that you take the steps that are recommended. And uh, so, of course, when we got into our first situation, um, it, you know, it became obvious to us that at some point we had thought that you know, AHS is going to be involved and they're going to uh, take the reins, you know, whether it's lead the investigation, do the contact tracing, whatever the case might be. Um, and, and that really has not come to pass. Uh, it's something that school divisions around the province um, have picked up the slack on. And, and we do it because it's the safe and the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. Uh, but man, it's, uh, it's really opened my eyes because the procedures that we have and our school division is amazing, incredibly supportive. Uh, we have lots of detailed routines and things that we have to go through scripts that we're allowed to follow when we have to have those conversations. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's something though that each school division is doing um, and, and honestly, uh, you know, contact tracing from a school perspective um, is, is very much taken over by school staff. And so depending on when you hear, depending on what the circumstance is, uh, you know, in, in my case, uh, it was uh, one was a Saturday morning, uh, you know, where we had to roll out 
okay, let's go back, let's take a look at the case, let's take a look at the individual affected, uh, and then who else is involved and what are the permutations. And so all of those decisions, you know, got made um, in conjunction with our school staff and, uh, you know, AHS obviously is informed, uh, but that follow-up piece that I think we thought was going to happen uh, simply, you know, it, it, it's not the case. Ted, in, in plain language, uh, and for those of you that are just tuning in, listening to us live on Mixler, you're, you're traveling through your day and you're just getting the audio here. We're talking to Principal Ted Hutchings of uh, Delburn Centralized School, just east of Red Deer. Uh, what, what makes this most difficult in the sense of, your, you know, you're saying sort of in plain language here, we were hoping to hear from AHS or we're hoping to receive directives or we're hoping to have the, you know, sort of the bigger picture type decisions made for us. Instead, we are making them at a local level. What's the biggest thing that, that makes you nervous about that or what's most frustrating about that? Is, is it that you're not sure you're making the right decision? Is it because you don't believe you should be put in that position? Is it because it puts you on the front line of, of backfire from, from parents? I mean, what is it? Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I've, uh, I've got a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in education. I'm a, I'm a teacher, you know, uh, I live with a health professional, uh, which, which is fortunate. My wife is a registered nurse here at the hospital. And so, you know, um, she can, she can offer me some, <laughs> some questions to ask and things like that. But I never expected that I was going to be, uh, you know, in that position of, determining, you know, okay, uh, if, if this is your, you know, the time that you got your positive case, or if this is when you started exhibiting symptoms, now we're tracking back and, and we're offering that advice to families that no, you do need to self-isolate, you are recommended to test, uh, some of those kinds of things that, um, you know, for me, I never envisioned having to do those things. I never pictured myself having to make those uh, decisions. And at, at the end of the day, uh, like I, you know, I, I said earlier, safety of kids and safety of our staff is, is just the most important thing. So we're very much erring on the side of caution. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, the whole concept of a close contact and how it's defined in schools, well, it's very, very broad. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think we need to be very, very cautious and, and err on the side of caution. But at the same time, uh, when you look at the swath that that leaves, it's, it's pretty significant. And so, you know, the thing that really has come to light for me is you look at the lineups and I've been in those lineups, uh, you know, in order to get tested because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Uh, so you look at how many families, uh, how many kids, how many staff have been impacted. And I'm just thinking of my little school, you know, uh, as you said, uh, Delburn's a rural community, half an hour out of Red Deer. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been hit in the last two weeks quite hard. I cannot imagine the impact that this has on some of those bigger schools in the larger urban centers. It's, uh, you know, I've read articles and, and uh, certainly had conversations with colleagues around the province. And when I think about the scope of it, when you take our situation and then you extend it out to over a thousand schools now around the province, 
man, it's a, it's a significant impact. Well, Ted, and we're taking, you know, we hear numbers, you know, Dr. Dean Hinshaw saying that, you know, they're, they're experiencing and off the top of my head. I, you know, I, I hesitate to put this out because I'm running off the top of my head and there's so many numbers swirling around, but I remember some, I believe it was Edmonton schools. I believe that was the context. It may be Alberta schools. I think it's Edmonton schools uh, outbreaks in 17% of the schools, which is just shy of one in five, uh, right. And then you get, you know, we were all in grade 10 once, grade 11 once, you know, you sneak behind the 7-Eleven and then you make out with the, the, you know, the person of interest from the other school. Right. That you've always kind of wanted, you know, you, you saw them at the soccer game two years ago and you've always been interested. And it's not personal testimony, but I'm just saying it doesn't take much uh, for one school to all of a sudden impact another school. And then all of a sudden, 17 percent becomes 35, becomes exponentially larger. And then all of a sudden you have outbreaks everywhere. And then families that are still going to gather through Christmas and then the high school student not showing symptoms sees grandma. Grandma gets it. And we all know how that story goes. So assuming that there is an announcement today or tomorrow or at some point this week where the provincial government will announce even stiffer crackdowns. Uh, what specifically would you hope to hear or what have you been hoping to hear? What have you been demanding to hear, for example, from the education minister? What do you hope to hear from the premier? hear your question there. My uh, audio kicked out on me. No problem. Let me just ask it very quickly. What do you hope to hear from the premier if the province announces further crackdowns today or tomorrow? Um, I hope that, uh, you know, it's a common sense plan. I think we all, we all know that kids being in school is the best scenario uh, for learning uh, socially for kids. Uh, I think emotionally for kids, uh, we have a very safe, caring environment in our school, and I, I, I know that's the case in, in schools around the province. And uh, so I just hope that, um, you know, I, I guess I hope that we have some sense and some clear vision of what's to come. Uh, dealing with the curveballs, uh, having to respond, you know, uh, overnight to things, uh, that that's unfortunate. So I... I'm looking for direction. I, I would just like to be able to say, here's our end date. Here's what's going to happen. And uh, then we'd be able to plan accordingly and, and make the best of it. Ted Hutchings is principal at Delburn Composite School, east of Red Deer, uh, and a good friend of this talk show. We really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you for uh, providing a voice here and some perspective for us from the front line when it comes to what Alberta schools and what Alberta's educators are, are dealing with. I want to let you know, Ted, on our YouTube feed right now, you've got uh, at least one parent of a student at your school, and they're giving you more than a passing grade, so you should walk proudly today with that. <laughs> Oh, thanks so much, Ryan. I uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, one one silver lining, I guess, of being uh, stuck at home here for the past ten days is I I have had a chance to listen to your podcast, and uh, I just love the perspectives that you bring. And I, I'm just really honored that uh, you reached out and and uh, offered me a chance to speak. Thank you. Anytime, Ted. That's what we're here for, and we appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. If you want to follow up with Ted, if you want to send him a note of encouragement, you want to ask him a question. You're curious about kids and. In their school, in whatever your division is, you can find them on Twitter. Every morning on Twitter, I release the lineup of our guests, at least how it looks right around 8.15. Of course, that can always change through the day if news breaks or if stories develop. 
I also want to let you know on my Twitter this morning, at Ryan Jesperson, that's where you can follow me. We're thrilled to roll out our partnership with Y-Station. Y-Station is the official communications and research partner of Real Talk. And today, we're launching our Real Talk Get Real Question of the Week. Now, this is more involved than a Twitter poll. This is our chance to understand who our audience is, what your perspectives are, where you're coming from on issues that matter. And so we're going to ask you to sign up for the Real Talk panel. And every week, we're going to ask you to chime in. We're going to ask you a question, a question related to issues that matter to people. And then we'll have scrutinized scientific polling to be able to roll out here on the show. We're thrilled to have this exclusive opportunity as we continue to add to what we think is a wide breadth of offerings here on the show. This week's question is, with everything happening around COVID, how do you plan on celebrating the holidays this year? So follow the link. You'll find it on my Twitter profile. I'm going to post it on Facebook after the show today. And of course, we'll check in with Y Station and get to the answers of our question of the week each and every week. Sam, before we get to Max Fawcett, why don't we take a look at what's making news today? Here are the headlines on this Tuesday morning. Well, we heard from the Prime Minister, Canada getting set to roll out about 250,000. This will be the first rollout of vaccinations, vaccines from Pfizer and the German company BioNTech. Uh, COVID-19 vaccinations before the end of 2020 should be about a quarter million, which would meet about 120,000 people. You need two shots for it. Uh, Alberta, based on per capita distribution, earmarked for about 30,000 doses of those announced yesterday, including a shipment of 3,900 next week. Now, you've got to double them up, so that's just under 2,000 people. Alberta government officials telling reporters they've earmarked basically long-term care, home residents, and staffers there, as well as frontline professionals. Those will be first in line to get the vaccine. As we take a look at what Alberta's COVID numbers look like right now, as I mentioned to you earlier, topping 20,000. We haven't put a red flag waving on this board, but we might as well. 1,735 new cases as of yesterday, 16 additional deaths. Those are 16 people. Those are 16 families that just lost somebody. More than 20,000 active cases, including more than 9,000 in Alberta's capital city, more than 7,000 in Calgary. And we're expecting an announcement on more restrictions, probably today, maybe tomorrow. You'll hear about it on tomorrow's Real Talk. If it doesn't happen this morning, I don't expect that it will. But as Alberta braces, we expect Alberta's government to respond. All right. Our first guest here in the nine o'clock block, we'll talk to Melissa Cowett of Canadian Strategy Group coming up around 930. You probably know Max Fawcett. Uh, he's a prolific Twitter. Uh, a pro- oh, yes. Yep, no, he uh, I got him online. He has to step away for two minutes. He's just coming back on right now. Oh, yeah. All right? No problem. Yep. OK, I appreciate that. Well, it gives me a chance to get to our comments. Uh, we obviously are keeping an eye on two comment threads here. There's the Real Talk RJ hashtag on Twitter, which is a great way for you to get in touch with us. And then, of course, there's also the live YouTube comment thread. And, and we wanted to give a shout out as well to DK this morning. Uh, DK is watching us and uh, signed in and said, good morning. I heard great things about this program. So first time 
listener here. So DK Stepanko is watching the show for the first time this morning. We want to welcome you officially to the family. And it's been so cool to see on the thread. I mean, you can tell my face hurts from smiling. So many of you, you're like, good morning, DK. Welcome, DK. I'm like, this is not how YouTube comment threads usually go, Sam. Usually people are, are saying horrific things to one another and uh, nobody's getting along. But instead, we've got people welcoming one another to healthy dialogue. There's something special happening here, I think. What do you think? Uh, I think YouTube is rarely the place for healthy dialogue. Um, it's No, it, it surprises me. It surprises me that we have this crop of regulars that, that tune in every morning. Um, I love it. I, I just, I love watching the conversations happen back and forth. I mean, it, it's like we've... It surprises me that, that all we had to do to create a civil political dialogue in this province was just start a YouTube show. Like, yeah. how hard can it be? Yeah, all I had to do was get fired, and then here we are, civil political dialogue in Western Canada. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to either of our careers, isn't it? Max Fawcett is the former editor of Alberta Oil. He's done some good work in uh, the government of Alberta's climate change office under Premier Rachel Notley. He's an author regularly published in McLean's Magazine, The Walrus, and other publications. And uh, just a couple of days ago, if my math is correct, Max Fawcett was the birthday boy as he makes his Real Talk debut this morning. Max, a happy birthday belated to you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. Uh, so where are you coming to us from? Are you in Vancouver this morning? No, I'm in I'm in Calgary uh, in my in my bedroom uh, while okay. someone else in the place does work in another part of the house. You know, work well from home is is the new normal. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we appreciate you joining us uh, from your home in Calgary this morning. Uh, Max, we're going to be talking about a piece that you've just written in The Walrus uh, about the middle class uh, in just a moment, and, it, and it's fascinating stuff. Uh, but we're also today talking, obviously, about the federal government's COVID-19 response, including the announcement, I'm sure one that the prime minister was eager to make about pro not just necessarily procuring or signing deals uh, for, for vaccine delivery, but actually putting a timeline on it, actually telling Canadians how many vaccines will be available, where they'll be going and when they'll be arriving. There's, of course, then the provincial responses to all of this, and the provinces have kind of been maybe a little bit on their heels, not knowing what was coming from the federal government. Now they've got to find a way to make it all happen. What do you make, first off, of the federal government's response? And I'm keeping the question wide open and broad on purpose. The federal government's response so far to COVID-19, including the vaccination, the vaccine announcement this week. You know, I think I'd give it a B plus. They've they've done a, a pretty good job, certainly in terms of the programs they've delivered. Uh, you know, that have helped businesses, helped households. Um, there there have been certainly some gaps, uh, but they have tried to fill them. I think as quickly as possible, and we saw that with with the vaccine rollout. I, I think they knew that the vaccines were coming um, by the end of the year, and certainly uh, in in great volumes in the new year. Um, but I think they let the opposition kind of make a bit of a fool of themselves uh, by being so strident about, uh, you know, saying that we're at the back of the line and that we're, we're not going to get vaccines, you know, until much later. And I think they've, they've really kind of uh, proven them, them wrong. And, and, and I think Canadians will, will reward them for, for being able to deliver vaccines by the end of this year. And then, and certainly getting them out there uh, in much greater numbers in 2021. What did there, there's been a lot of conversation, uh, you know, the official opposition and, and, and I guess to a certain degree, you can't fault the opposition for opposing. It's, it's inherent uh, to their job description to hold government accountable, to present alternative ideas on perhaps how they would be governing. I think also, though, during a pandemic, Canadians expect politicians to work together in some form of bipartisan cooperation. I'm certainly not suggesting because it's unrealistic and naive 
that opposition members would simply toe the line with government and walk hand in hand singing kumbaya. But with regards to some of the criticism we've seen from the opposition conservatives, the opposition NDP, is there anything that you think has actually resonated with some form of validity? I mean, there's been some pot shots from, you know, Derek Sloan and Pierre Polyev and, and Aaron O'Toole, of course, the leader of the conservatives. Have you seen anything that you say, you know what, that's actually a great valid point? I think the concerns that they raised around the timelines were important. I think people are very anxious. They want to know when they're going to be able to return to, to life as we used to know it. And, and, you know, we're all exhausted. We're all tired at this point. And, and we would like to have some sort of specific date in mind. And I think the feds were a little sloppy with that. You know, I, mean, I there was a, a tweet that Seamus O'Regan had a, a little while ago where he said, basically, you know, the plan is you'll get a vaccine when when we have it available. And it was very much sort of a trust us, we know attitude. And I think people don't have a lot of bandwidth for that right now. They would like to know, they'd like to be able to put a date on the calendar. And maybe that's not realistic, but I think the opposition did a good job of kind of forcing the government to be more specific and outlining when those those vaccines would arrive. You know, on the other hand, you, you have members of parliament and in the opposition and, and not just members of parliament, the, the official finance critic, the official critic for innovation, um, basically spinning up conspiracy theories right now um, about the government's pandemic response and, and the, you know, the, the fiscal stimulus that's coming down the road. And, you know, look, like you said, the, the, the job of the opposition is to oppose. And we need that now, I think, not more than ever, but we need, we need constructive opposition. We, we're, we're spending all this money. We need our opposition members to come up with good ideas, be, be constructive, get the government to do the best that it can do. They're, they're way far away from that right now with some of these conspiracy theories they're ginning up. And are you, and what are you talking, are you talking about? The, are, to watch. are you talking about the great reset and all that jazz? Yeah, the great reset. And, and now, uh, Pierre Poiliev and, and, um, Mark Cumming, who is, uh, you know, the member of parliament for Edmonton center, are suggesting that that Christian Freeland, based on a very sort of selectively edited clip, uh, is coming for your personal savings, which is shades of of what Pierre Poiliev said in the last election when he said they were coming for the equity in your home. Yeah, ha- hang on a second, Max. Uh, we do have we have the Freeland clip as you mentioned. It's forty five seconds, but even still. I mean, I, I think, you know, you can pull a clip at, at like six seconds and say, see what this person just said? Uh, you know, I just did it uh, 10 minutes ago uh, when I said, if, if you're a right wing conservative, there will be things about this show that will infuriate you. Uh, and then if you, if you don't roll <laughs> and you don't roll the clip out where I say, and there will also be guests that will really resonate with you. That's the bedrock of this program. So everybody's seen that done right in storytelling documentaries. Uh, oftentimes, not everyone, but documentaries can pick and pluck and take interviews and twist them. I mean. That's what skilled storytellers sometimes do to further their own narrative. But this one here, the Christian Freeland clip, I, I don't understand wh- where my member of parliament, James Cumming, is even coming from, talking about a dystopian-type future. I mean, let's be reasonable here, friends, and we're going to roll this clip for you here right now. Canada's finance minister, the deputy PM, uh, who, by the way, I'm not typically one to do this, but we expect to be speaking with her in the next few days. Um, uh, Christia Freeland is talking about giving Canadians, I think, the confidence— and the incentives to get off their wallets and invest in the economy, to spend money again, to help one another out. That's what I take. Let me know, uh, to those of you listening, watching right now, what do you make of, of what Christian Freeland's saying here? Let's roll it. Of money 
that they've saved because there hasn't been that much to do in the pandemic. And certainly it would be great if that money could go towards driving our recovery. And I want to make an offer now to all of your listeners. If people have ideas on how the government can act to help unlock that preloaded stimulus, I am very, very interested. Maybe as Doug Porter was suggesting, it happens by itself. That's the best case scenario for me. But if people have ideas on how we can really, you know, try to unleash that and particularly unleash it in the parts of the Canadian economy that really need support, tourism, hospitality, domestic services, uh, let me know. Okay, so that was Christia Freeland. Um, I don't find anything completely sensational about that, uh, but it prompted this tweet yesterday from a conservative MP who's, uh, if I remember off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure he's the shadow minister for science. Uh, but here's yeah. James Cummings' tweet uh, out of Edmonton Center. He says, you know, it looks like your personal savings are about to become property of the Liberal Party of Canada. This is all becoming very dystopian. Uh, like, t- to give you a sense of, James Cumming is not, uh, I mean, some members of parliament I might expect that from because, you know, there are some idiots that that, it's not that hard to get elected to office in some writings. You know, you can be a complete tool uh, depending on the party banner under which you run. James Cumming is not one of those people. He's a former chair of the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. He's a successful CEO. He's a respected uh, entrepreneur. Uh, Max, what do you make of that? Yeah, that was the part that, uh, was a little bit surprising. There are definitely people in the caucus that I expect these sorts of fever dreams from. James Cumming is not one of them. And I think it speaks to the kind of toxic influence of partisanship on some levels. Um, th- th- I guess there's an expectation that you carry the team banner. And I guess this is the conservative banner right now, conspiracy theories. Um, but I don't think he's doing himself any favors in the long run. Like you said, Edmonton Center is a very contested riding, and, and I don't think Edmontonians who are, you know, as you know, very pragmatic, thoughtful uh, people are, are going to take too kindly to this kind of stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, what Christopher Freeland is talking about here is, is uh, trying to attract investment in key industries in Canada. That's, that's something that conservatives have always supported and should support. Um, you know, it is, it is patriotic. It is good for business. There's nothing wrong here. Um, and to gin this up into some sort of conspiracy theory, it's, I think it kind of speaks to a, a rot in the, in the federal conservative brain trust. Uh, Chad's watching on YouTube right now. He says, what's up with this weird radicalization of conservatives? He says, I don't understand the tactic and it's alienating the base. Um, I agree with you, Chad, and not just alienating the base, uh, but, but first of all, it's empowering uh, the part of the base you don't want to feel empowered, the QAnon weird conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat wearing, you know, mask ripping kind of maniacs. That's not how you win seats. That's not how you win ridings in, in metropolitan centers. You might say, I don't care. Well, you should care. If you want your party to govern, you should care about that and you should figure out the tone you want your party to set. Uh, we're going to be talking to Melissa Cowett, a conservative strategist, just after 9.30 about this exact thing. And I look forward to that conversation. Max, one of the things I thought that the conservatives were bang on, uh, and and uh, and I don't think that I'm suggesting anything profound here, is, is the idea that there needs to be more government transparency. Even in contrasting or comparing Canada and the United States, the federal government has spent about a quarter trillion dollars, invested, let's say, in Canada's economy and Canadians, 
keeping Canadians' lights on and fridges full through this pandemic, doing what the government can, I suppose, and and, and we'll be able to analyze this from 10,000 feet 10 years from now, uh, but there hasn't been as much transparency as I think Canadians deserve, and I think the Conservatives there have something worth pursuing. Do you agree? I do. I think, you know, Canadians have a right to know where this money is being spent, how it's being spent, and if it's not being spent um, correctly. I think I I understand where maybe the government is coming from here in that the Conservatives have shown a, a clear inclination to take information and misrepresent it. Um, and, and so can can they be trusted to faithfully and, and honestly unpack some of the information that that they're maybe asking for. So I, I do think that they have a good case here, but I think they need to be, they need to show a little more responsibility in how they treat the facts um, if, if they want people to trust them uh, with, with carrying them. And, and right now, I haven't seen a ton of that. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if, if I start, uh, you know, peddling weird conspiracy theories on this show, I mean, it would be kind of a cool, like one in the morning podcast. Listen, while you know you're you're sort of like three handfuls deep on the bag of mushrooms that your buddy brought to the campfire, and you want to hear some weird shit about what's going on in the, the you know the parallel universe. Then fine, that's fine. That'll be our new show. That'll be that'll be the other. That'll be the next show we roll out. But but it's not. But we compromise our credibility if we want to be taken seriously on anything else. And the same goes for political parties. We're talking to Max, Max Fawcett uh, in just a second. Thewalrus.ca is where you can read. His his piece, How to Save the Middle Class. And we're going to get to that, starting off with the obvious question. Hey, Max, who is the middle class? But first, we know that it's probably most of us, and that's why we're very proud to be partnering with groups that have you in mind, groups that are looking out for you, including the team at Westworld Computers. They're all about family, they're all about personal relationships, and they're about finding that perfect fit for the technology in your life. So whether that's the iPhone that you're using all the way up to whatever your family or your business has on the desktop. Westworld Computers for more than 40 years has been family owned and operated across Western Canada, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and they want your business. Give Westworld Computers a call and ask for Daryl or one of his team members. They'll be happy to help. Check out the link under sponsors at ryanjesperson.com. We're also thrilled to be partnering with Park Power. Yeah, there's the big utility giants Park Power is locally founded, locally owned. Their call centers are local. Their customer service is local. They provide internet, electricity, and natural gas in the province of Alberta. And they give back to Alberta by way of profit sharing with charities. You can learn more about what they're doing by checking out parkpower.ca or find them across social media. They do a great job there. As mentioned, Max Fawcett is our guest, a journalist and uh, the author of How to Save the Middle Class, you can read it right now at thewalrus.ca. How do you define, uh, politicians will never answer the question, Max, and I understand why. It depends on the city you're talking about. There are some factors at play, but who is the middle class? That really is kind of the, the million-dollar question, and it, you can define it a number of different ways. You can do it by income. You can do it uh, by wealth. You can do it by tastes. Uh, you know, it's... The borders on on who is and who isn't middle class are, are pretty fuzzy. Um, the, the way I define it is a little more holistically. I, I think I think of the middle class as people who feel like they have a, a good foothold on you know in, in their lives. They they can afford a home. They can they can afford some nice things. But they 
they also still want more for their kids um, and they have to work for it. You know, these are not people who inherit their money. These are not people who, um, you know, own four properties. Uh, these are people who work for a living, whether that's, you know, working at a university, working at a, at a business they own uh, or working, uh, you know, as a, as a trade. They're, they're, those are all middle-class people. Uh, I think the thing that kind of ties them together is a sense of, of striving for, for better for their kids um, and being engaged in society. You talk about our new national pastime, which is living beyond our means. Where did that happen? I mean, I, I remember my, my grandparents, uh, and, and they did very well. My grandpa was a very proud chemical engineer with Chevron, and they were, they were, they were you know, fiscally prudent and, and responsible and all of these types of things. I mean, they'd stop to pick up a penny on the sidewalk. They, they're the ones that, that talk to me about the piggy bank and the idea of saving 10% of your income and all that type of stuff. My, my grandpa's uh, family had, had owned a, a hotel and, and a laundromat and had sort of eked through the Great Depression. I mean, that sort of thing sticks with that generation. Every person watching could probably tell the story of, 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 of their grandparents or another person influential in their life who had that perspective. Where did that change, Max? How did it change? And, and how did we get to the point now where, where, as you point out, the average Canadian household owes $1.77 for every dollar of after-tax income? It's a, a combined total of more than $2.3 trillion, as you write about in The Walrus. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that about your grandfather. My my grandfather uh, was a uh, entrepreneur and certainly could have afforded a, a new car. And he had this this old rust bucket. And I remember I was a kid. I asked him like, "Why don't you buy a new car?" And he said, "Why? This one works." You know, and that was just the mindset uh, of people from his generation. I, I think, I think you know, certainly consumer society as we know it really kind of kicked off in the '80s. I think the big trigger was the 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 breaking of of inflation and interest rates starting to come down. I mean, I remember hearing stories of uh, from my family of you know interest rates at twenty percent, and you can't carry a lot of debt when interest rates are at twenty percent. But as we went into the late eighties, nineties, two thousands, you know those rates just kept going down and down and down, and so it became cheaper and cheaper to borrow. It became better, easier and easier to live beyond your means, and I think it kind of just snuck up on us where that became the new normal that you just took debt was not debt was not a thing you avoided debt was a thing you almost embraced and we're certainly at that that spot now um you know i have lots of friends i'm sure you do as well who have you know five six hundred thousand dollars in in mortgage debt and it doesn't keep them up at night and my grandfather or even my dad if if they had ever had that attached to them they wouldn't have been able to sleep so but but I, max I, I, you I mean you've you've talked You've talked about this as much as I have. That the, the next generation is coming up. If, if we're to believe the statistics, or, or maybe even just the anecdotal evidence, they, they don't care about owning houses. It's not a priority anymore. Maybe because it's unattainable. It's true. Well, I mean that's part of it. Certainly in the bigger cities, you look at you know Toronto and Vancouver. There, you know, you really can't get anything better than a shed for uh, you know less than six hundred thousand dollars. But you know, I think the the next generation might. Be able to break this fever because like you said and, and i think we've seen this in a lot of different ways owning things is not as important to them they don't care about owning cars they don't care about owning homes it's really a lot more about experiences and and values for them and maybe they can be the ones that that get us off this this trend that we're on which you know it, it, it it's not helping uh, a lot of people yes you know you can borrow easily you can borrow cheaply but you know, at some point that borrowing carves into other things that you can do. You have to keep working, can't take 
time off. You've got, you, you know, maybe you can't take vacations. You can't go out for, for dinners. Like it's, there's a lot of house poverty in this country and it looks good from the outside. You know, it, it, it shines up on HGTV, but, but I don't think that that is the way to build a prosperous uh, middle-class life uh, to, to keep borrowing from somebody else. I don't want to just assume uh, it's kind of against my inclination to now ask you the question, which I'm still going to ask you, uh, because I'm curious to see how you'll answer it. I don't necessarily think that it's always the government's job to sort out uh, the economic trajectory of, of a country or a society. I think that there needs to be a role for, in some cases, and, and don't, don't at me about budgets balancing themselves, but I think sometimes economies dust has to settle and things have to figure themselves out in other circumstances. I think private sector investors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, business owners. I mean, we could have this conversation for 10 hours with a hundred different people, but on the government front, on the policy front, uh, you know, Mona Fortier is, is, is the government's minister of middle-class prosperity to, to give an idea of how the official opposition conservatives feel about it. Their leader, Aaron O'Toole is the shadow minister for middle-class prosperity. Are you seeing anything uh, in government or opposition that leads you to believe that our elected officials at the federal level are a keenly aware of the challenges Canadians face, b aware of what it looks like, where we're going and c that anybody has the tools or the vision to sort it out? I think it's always difficult for elected officials to to really understand what what's going on in terms of middle class lives because they don't lead middle class lives. You know, they 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 have these remarkably generous pensions that don't exist anymore, really anywhere in the private sector. Um, and and you know, you look at a thing like COVID that, that they're not negatively affected financially; they still get paid. It's it's hard for them to really um, feel that connection. I, I was very encouraged by Aaron O'Toole's decision to take that on as his, as his shadow um, portfolio. I think it's one of the smartest things he's done. And, and he's been very good about sort of speaking the language of the middle class, you know, conservatives can, can own that space. Um, certainly in Ontario, you know, sort of blue collar communities there, uh, there's lots of room for the conservative party to grow. And I think the more they engage on that issue with the liberals, the more it pushes the liberals to engage more constructively. Um, you know, people made fun of, of them for creating the, the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity. And quite frankly, I think they deserved every bit of mockery they got there. It's kind of a silly portfolio. But underneath it, there's some interesting stuff happening. The, the minister is um, looking at new data, new, new frameworks of understanding prosperity. They're doing this, uh, you know, in, in Scotland, in New Zealand, where they, they budget not just based on financial outcomes, but also social outcomes and health outcomes. I think we could be doing that here as well. I think that would help the middle class. Um, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of having an election over it. I would love to see an election fought entirely over who is best for the middle class, not who is best for the energy sector, not who is best for the auto sector, but who is best for the middle class. Uh, and maybe, but maybe Aaron O'Toole is the guy to do it. They've tried it, Max. I mean, it's been tried on both sides, right? I mean, the, the, I, I can think of Justin Trudeau almost campaigning exclusively to the middle class, what I think the biggest detrimental factor there was that to Canadians, it wasn't apparent that he understood who the middle class was. And, and we touched on that out of the gates on the interview today. Elections seem to always be about the middle class, at least when it comes to the talking points. The question is, does it actually translate into anything beneficial for the people that are casting those ballots? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You're right. I mean, politicians constantly talk around the middle class. I guess what I'm saying is it would be nice for them to get into a conversation of substance about yeah. 
what policies can we implement uh, beyond just tax cuts and, and you know, a, more social spending that would fundamentally change and improve the trajectory of the middle class right, right now? Uh, we'll wrap with this, Max. Uh, as always, every time I talk to you, I, we leave 55 questions on the table. Just means we'll have to bring you back. But I want to quote from your walrus piece here. Uh, COVID-19 is the most recent shock. It may prove to be the most devastating right now. Thanks to the more than $125 billion the federal government has provided in direct payments to individuals and in wage subsidies to businesses, many households are treading water, but the waters won't stay calm forever. Financial experts are concerned that when spending winds down and the bill for those mortgage deferrals comes due, the pandemic's full financial impact will be felt. Many predict a huge wave of insolvencies and bankruptcies. Realistic, ominous, what should people take from that? And what should people take away from this conversation we're having here? I think, you know, there's a lot of it's it's good that, that you know, the stock market is up. People, you know, people things haven't been as bad as we worried they would be in the spring. But I think the bad could still be in front of us. Um, you know, ironically, we could get the vaccines out. The health situation could improve and the economic situation could deteriorate. And so I think people just need to be mindful of the fact that that we're not done with this uh, and, and that we need to be a little more resilient in the way we build our lives. We can't um, use debt uh, to, to, to you know, build out the, the kind of existence we want to have. We maybe need to reexamine what it means to be middle class and what it means uh, in, in the context of our lives, what, what really matters to us. And I think COVID's been good for that. It's forced us to, to, to look at our relationships, to, to, to see what really is important in our lives. And I think we should continue that process going forward and, and you know, push out the things that aren't because uh, we don't have space for them. Max Fawcett is uh, active on Twitter at Max Fawcett. You can follow him there. And I encourage you to read his piece. Uh, very well done at the walrus.ca. Again, a belated happy birthday. Thanks for making your Real Talk debut with us this morning. A job well done, Max. Well, thank you. It was a very nice gift, and I look forward to Jespo after dark. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, that's where we'll take on the pressing conspiracy theories of the day. Uh, I've never seen. I, I don't think I've ever seen you look so excited, Sam. The the, uh, the the after. We'll have to come up with a cool name for it. I, I kind of like Jespo after dark. Yeah, it, maybe. It's, it's, although, yeah. although I keep I keep getting ripped from people close to me, my wife included. For the, she says you can't use the nickname that people have given you. You can't use it to talk about yourself. No, 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 no. I I disagree. I think you uh, you can't assign yourself a nickname. That's you true. Can't, you cannot come up with a nickname and give it to yourself. That's true. If if you are gifted a nickname, it is yours to embrace. Okay, I like it. Well, th- th- we'll just wait till we roll out the Jespo mugs. People are going to be very excited about that. I just uh, just off the top of my head, we haven't. Put Put any thought into it yet but i'm thinking there's the double entendre of you know you think of like um you know uh like ufos and things like that the way they travel and then you think of maybe the mindset some people are in when they talk about them perhaps we call the podcast buzzed buzzed oh i like it buzzed maybe that that that, that, okay. that can be the working title for now we'll figure it out um uh yeah uh, uh darren's l- listening and he says jespo after dark would be a sham full of corrupt trivia 
uh, Darren's upset. Darren's a listener uh, here of this program, a loyal listener of this program that followed me over from my previous show. Uh, we interacted once or twice when it came to hockey trivia, and he greatly underestimated my incredible ability to recall hockey. Tri- I'm speaking literally to one person right now, just looking into the camera, knowing that he's hearing this. He he just he was devastated by my tidal wave of success when it came to hockey trivia, and he has never and will never recover from that. Darren, I know that many out there can feel your pain. Uh, Let's get to those that are keeping us powered, keeping us on the air this morning. It includes the team at Alta Storage and we're so grateful for their partnership. They're basically your local one-stop shop for moving and portable pod-style on-site storage. You know those pod-style containers? Basically, they drop them off and then either you can fill them up if you want to use those eco-friendly frog boxes, they have those too, or they can provide workers for you as well that'll fill that pod box for you, that pod-style container. They'll take it to the new location. You can leave it there for whatever you need, whatever your specific challenge is. They've got the local team and they want to meet you there in the middle. Uh, we're so excited that Alta Storage is on board because they kind of fit our model too. Locally owned, locally grown, employing local people, and again, providing great service for their own community. So our thanks to the team at Alta Storage. We're also really excited to be partnered up with the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. I know it feels like March in Vancouver across much of Western Canada right now, but you know it's not going to last. Pretty soon we're going to be walloped by these snowstorms. There's going to be ice on the highways and you're going to be going, why did I not upgrade to a brand new Jeep 4x4? St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, your best Jeep selection in the province of Alberta, and they want your business, you can follow the links under sponsors at ryanjesperson.com. Very much looking forward to this uh, next conversation. Uh, Melissa Cowett is a good friend of the show, and, uh, well, she's got a very interesting, what she's describing to be her pandemic passion project. Uh, Melissa is a uh, conservative strategist, a political strategist that has been in the game for more than a decade and is making this morning her Real Talk debut. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. It's great to be here. And congratulations on what you've created here. It's awesome. Well, thank you very much. And and, and I encourage your, uh, or I, I appreciate your encouragement. Uh, Melissa, I know that, so you're VP of Government Relations and Business Development at Canadian Strategy Group. And I'm sure that some of the work that you're undertaking here, some of the research that you're doing about the, the evolution of conservatism in, in the United States, the UK and Canada will be applicable to the work that you're doing. But my understanding is that you're also doing this as, as a bit of a personal project. What what prompted this deep dive into conservative politics? So I am one of the lucky people during this pandemic that um, thankfully still has a job and am not responsible really for anybody else other than myself. So I find myself uh, in the evenings and weekends with a lot of free time. And I have always really been interested in the intersection of you know, how philosophy and history and and um, great thinkers in the conservative tradition have influenced our politics today. And so I thought um, it'd be a good way to sort of um, educate myself more and kind of go through that process um, on my blog and, and sort of unpack some of what's happened, because I think um, whatever sort of political tradition that you're studying, I think the past informs the present so much. And I think forgetting about the past and and not um, really looking at it in a critical way is something 
um, that can hurt in the present. So that that's really what precipitated this. So and and also I'm a huge nerd. So there's that. <laughs> well, that's okay. You you you're right at home here. We're all nerds in our own special way, Melissa. So that that's that's a that's a welcome status. Um, I think sometimes you can tell a lot about a person, or at least or at least you can sort of establish a starting point for political perspective if that person has a particular political legend that has really informed them you know it's someone oh, oh she's a real thatcher gal or that guy really admired churchill or or ronald reagan is where this guy takes all of his economics from or or stephen harper was that guy's you know so was there a, is there a conservative politician uh, from one of the three countries that you've been looking into that really helped shape your perspective um I'd say the two that I favor the most are probably Thatcher and um, Harper, um, just in the way that they, you know, what I'm finding in a lot of my research is that no um, leader has been successful by basically taking conservative principles and plopping them um, into government policy without providing some context. And I so, so I think that both of those politicians were able to really um, sense what civil society was telling them about what they wanted from government and sort of overlay that with what traditional conservative principles are. So importance of institutions, importance of civil society, um, addressing change in a prudent way. And so I think that, you know, those two politicians for me, um, you know, contextually speaking, um, are, are probably the two that I admire the most. But I mean, it's important to note as well that we can't look back. And I think this is something that we see happening a lot in politics in the United States. We're always um, hearkening back to we want to be like Reagan or we, or we want to be like some other former leader. And I think doing that is really damaging if we don't contextualize what's happening. You know, our world today is so different than it was 20, 30 years ago, heck, even five years ago. And if we forget that, we're taking nuggets of really good policy and approaches that some of those leaders had and misplacing them without the context. It's not fair for me to ask you a question looping all to say, what do you make of, you know, so-called small C conservatism in, in the United States, Canada, and the UK? It, I think it demands three different conversations for sure. Uh, and we want to make the time for that, by the way. Uh, but, but I am curious to know your take on, on, you know, some of the, some of sort of maybe the, the outliers uh, in the, the movements in those respective countries. I think you and I could probably talk for an hour or more just about the state of the Republican Party in the United States. Um, you know, people are talking about, you know, Trump in 2024. Other people are saying we got to get Trump out of the mix so we can bring up young Republican, young conservative leaders in the United States and make the party palatable to people in two years when some of the next uh, votes come up. In, in Canada, I think one of the things that Stephen Harper was known for, uh, much to some chagrin, and, and others thought that he was very astute in doing it, was was keeping sort of a clamp down on, on, on some of the more extreme factions of the party, or at least some of those perspectives, whereas that may not be the case right now with the Conservative Party of Canada. And frankly, I think that that's hurting the party's chances, at least at this stage. Uh, do you think that there are common parallels or do you think that there are recurring storylines that you observe in conservative movements in those three countries that concern you right now? Um, so I'll, I'll sort of answer that question in a roundabout way. So I think that the core tenets of conservatism that we see um, in these three countries and just sort of generally speaking in Western liberal democracies is, like I said, that commitment to um, civil society, placing emphasis on the value of institutions, measured change, prudent policymaking, and of course, the value of individualism as well. And where I think that um, 
today where we have some issues with conservatism is that we, we haven't adapted what that means. Um, and so the timing and the context and, and keeping current, I think is, is really important. So for example, you know, civil society in 1950 was something fundamentally different than it is today. You know, even if we just look at it from the perspective of religion, you know, not as many people go to church today or, or, um, or attend um, religious gatherings today. Not as many people um, find their community in those um, sort of avenues. And so the situation and where people are finding themselves is really different today. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a commitment to these things, but I think some of the things that we're guilty of as conservatives is sort of thinking that the definition of some of those things in terms of what it was and not what it is today. So how do you, so, it, I mean, you're not using the words, the, the movement has lost its way uh, by any stretch, but in your assessment, if, if you take a look at, let's talk about the federal uh, official opposition here in Canada, the Conservative Party of Canada, now led by Aaron O'Toole. Where do you believe that Mr. O'Toole's leadership, and again, it's early, we've we've seen him campaign for the leadership, which, as as you will tell us, is much different than campaigning in an election. Um, I, I, it's very interesting for me to see some potential leaders or leadership candidates get somewhat twisted up in what might appear to be hypocritical stances, not just Aaron O'Toole, but Peter McKay as well and others that have perhaps realized they need to reach one group on the prairies as an example, but then they're also trying to grow the party's base in Toronto. And those are very different messages, right? So we've not seen Aaron O'Toole campaign in an election mode, and I'm very curious to see what that will look like. But based on the early observations you've been able to make, where do you believe he's bang on? And, and where do you believe maybe he's got some work to do? So I really appreciate um, what Aaron O'Toole has done for the sort of brand in conservatism, brand of conservatism in Canada by really getting out front of a lot of this sort of social issues that tend to be albatrosses around our neck. So you, you saw him right when he was elected um, leader come out and assure um, Canadians that the Conservative Party is a big tent party. There's room for people of all um, beliefs in it. Um, we are not going to legislate on contentious social issues. In fact, if you have opinions that are perhaps different than some of the far right um, or far more centrist views, that's okay. We'll accommodate all of those things. And so I think that that is um, one of the most important things that he could have done for the movement, because a lot of what has really plagued us and plagued leaders of the past is um, not addressing some of those things in the same way. And so um, that is something that I've really appreciated. And I think that that will go a really long way in the next general election and um, in being able to, to say, look, these, this is not something that we're going to move forward on. Um, but I think especially in Western Canada, and it sort of um, touches on what you were talking about with Max earlier, just in terms of this anti-Trudeau um, and, and anti-Ottawa sentiment. It's actually a really unique um, thing here in Alberta, right? Like we can even see it in our provincial politics that being anti-Ottawa, anti-liberal is actually really beneficial um, electorally. People really like it when conservative politicians, both provincially and federally, um, hold liberals, particularly Trudeau liberals, to account. And so that I think, you know, may provide them some electoral success. But if we're really going to try and move forward and expand um, the movement across Canada, we probably need to start um, 
thinking a bit more collaboratively and, and especially within the context of what we're dealing with with right now um you know perhaps that kind of rhetoric works when we're not dealing with a global pandemic but i think that many albertans and, and many people in western canada um there is a sentiment of wanting to work together they they, they don't want to work together to not get anything out of the deal and be left out in the cold but um i think that need for collaboration um is true and, and especially so now because we we can't solve these complex problems of society and public health by by acting alone I agree with you 100%. This is Melissa Cowett that's joining us, Canadian Strategy Group. Um, Melissa, I, I, you know, I think of two examples uh, right off the top of my head. Um, and I know that, that uh, you know, on the provincial front, uh, Premier Jason Kenney, there's no love lost between himself and Justin Trudeau. I'm sure that the feeling is mutual. Um, and, and that's perfectly fine. And I think that Kenny would see probably strong support from his base in, 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 in perpetuating anti-Trudeau sentiment. But, you know, one of the things that concerned me was not Premier Kenny himself, uh, but House Leader Jason Nixon, uh, a short time ago, I guess it was two or three weeks ago, um, under his breath, but audibly, when they were talking about the federal tracing app, the, the opposition NDP, he muttered, yeah, the Trudeau tracing app. And it kind of, it really struck me. Like I thought, that this we're talking about public health. We're talking about a pandemic. We're talking about tracing data that 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 is sorely lacking in Alberta and quite frankly across the country. And the last thing that I or think anybody wants to hear is that the reason that Alberta's the only province not on board would have anything to do with a personal axe to grind against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. That's the type of thing that I caught that that I believe could potentially cause people or does cause people to lose faith in a party or in this case in a government. You know, I think that you need to be careful. I think I'm just reiterating what you've already said. I don't know if you have deep comments on that, but that was one example that came to me right off the top of my head. I think it's an interesting point to bring up just in the sense of um you know, this begs the question that I'll sort of be unpacking as well is what is conservatism in Alberta? And I think that we as Albertans think that we are really conservative and really blue and that we have a long history of that and um, self-identify as that. But actually when you unpack a lot of the history of, of where we've been, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that have been done that are not necessarily perfectly aligned with what, um, what philosophy and economics would consider conservative. You know, you look back to even um, Ralph Klein, you know, people people consider Ralph Klein, and I think many people within this government would, would agree as well that that is sort of the father of conservatism. In Alberta, P Ralph Klein was largely beloved, um, and he wasn't actually that conservative. You know, he, he gets um, he gets sort of flack from how he made um, cuts in the early 90s. But again, context is everything. This was a very different time. Interest rates were much different. The way that governments handled debt were much different. Um, but, you know, on, on a lot of other issues as well, he wasn't overly conservative. Same with Peter Lougheed. You know, Peter Lougheed had a famous um, saying that he'd use, you know, free enterprise that cares. And so I think where we get mixed up a bit in Alberta is that we define our brand of conservatism not largely rooted in sort of first principles, um, but in sort of opposition to Trudeau um, or opposition to Ottawa, you know, and, and we have a long history of struggling with our place in Confederation and a lot of that is um, warranted, but I think now that we're in this situation, I think it really necessitates a sort of reflection on okay 
first of all, as conservatives or Albertans, what does that really even mean to be conservative? Um, and how is that different from, from where it is in the other parts of the world? And I, also for political parties, just in terms of how they apply those principles, you know, what, what does the electorate really want? I, I see Premier Kenny trying to um, really govern from a place of conservative principles or what he believes to be conservative principles. But if that's not what the public wants, then there has to be a reconsideration of, of what the approach is. Yeah. And, 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 We'll do series of shows on that. I, I'm, we had a really interesting interview with with Thomas Lukasik, former deputy premier, yesterday. I know that Lukasik and Kenny can't stand one another either. I, that's important to note. But but Thomas made an interesting and compelling argument that what we see in Alberta right now is not conservatism whatsoever. And if you're just watching this now or tuning into this now for the first time, you can, of course, get our podcast anyway, or you can watch yesterday's broadcast with Thomas Lukasik included uh, via our YouTube channel. We're talking to Melissa Cowett. Hey, let me, let me ask you this uh, quickly. i got to take a question quick break but the father of conservatism in alberta that that is uh that is a heck of a title to attempt to bestow because i'm immediately wondering i don't know i think maybe preston manning might want that title i think maybe some might give that to preston manning what say you um Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. I think it again. It evolves over time, so we've got to give everybody in the movement credit. Yeah, there you go. And I don't know that it, that that many people right now. If we were to see Peter Lougheed, I think widely regarded as Alberta's greatest premier. I mean, I think you'd get a lot of votes for Ralph Klein from a lot of folks, but I think Peter Lougheed, uh, to me, is a legendary figure. Certainly, um, I don't know that Peter Lougheed's perspectives would be welcome within today's United Conservative Party. Do you think they would be? Um, I think it would depend, but it's a different time as well, right? Like there's, um, the, the, the challenge that Premier Kenny and the UCP have is keeping a very big tent together. Um, and, and Lockheed didn't have that same challenge. And by the way, I don't think that governing from a place of, of keeping that big tent together is necessarily a bad thing. Um, because, you know, the, the, the UCP do have a strong mandate, um, you know, I know polling numbers have definitely been questionable lately, but there were certainly um, able to keep that that big tent together at the outset. So I don't think that trying to do that is inherently bad. I think, though, we again, even 2020 from 2019, a very different situation. So we have to always be keeping with what the public wants um, and how we can use conservative principles to to fulfill that within the context of what's happening today. Uh, Melissa, are you a fan of Matthew McConaughey by chance, the actor? Who isn't a fan of Matthew okay, McConaughey, honestly? That's, <laughs> hey, that's that's the answer I was hoping for, because in about 45 seconds, I want to roll a clip uh, of an interview that he did with Time Magazine, and I get, want to get your take on it, on, on bringing together people from different political perspectives. Um, not everybody is uh, interested or has an appetite for McConaughey's political takes, I know, based on our YouTube comments from when I roll, rolled a different one earlier this morning, his conversation with Russell Brand. We'll see what Melissa makes of that clip coming up in just a second. First, we wanted to recognize the teams at Dairy Queen and North Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, uh, they are the sweetest partner of ours, if you will. That's ter- that's a terrible, that, that's like, that's a dad joke. Well, you you are a dad, so that makes sense. I am sense. a dad, so what do you yeah, expect? Right? Exactly. Yeah, what do you expect? I'm not going to freeze out my great ideas. I'm going to bring them to you. Soft served, everyone. Oh, okay, all right. I'm getting chirped from the producer desk, so why don't I just tell you that the team 
At the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road right now are ready. They're chock full, locked and loaded with those Christmas frozen ice cream logs. You know these ones? They're absolutely legendary. A Christmas treat, maybe a tradition with your family. They're currently half price until Christmas Day. But here's the thing. Only at the Dairy Queen locations that are advertising on Real Talk. Uh-huh. 50% off the Christmas frozen ice cream logs at those six locations. These things are unreal. Tell them Jespo sent you. See, now I'm using the nickname now that you guys gave me the... All right. Melissa Cowett is our guest, conservative strategist with Canadian Strategy Group. She's working on her Pandemic Passion Project, which is tracing the evolution of conservatism in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Melissa, Matthew McConaughey recently granted an interview with Time Magazine. This is part of their Time 100. And I, and he talks about people, uh, polarized perspectives, and obviously in the context of the U.S., but I think you could say the same here in Canada. Uh, I want to roll this and and then we'll get your take on what he says. If you think he's onto something or if you think he's just another Hollywood frou-frou. Sam, let's roll it. I think what this year's election did is expose what we all kind of didn't really want to say out loud is that there is a great divide and there has been a great divide. Um, my, my hunch is that moving forward in this time where people have run to the extremes and mind you, I will say, I'm happy to say that I've had talked to quite a few people who are feeling buyer's remorse for running to those extremes yeah. um, because I think they're looking around going, oh, I'm not sure this is really, I agree with everyone I'm at the table with here. Um, my hunch is that there's a common denominator of values that we can all agree on, that are bipartisan, non-denominational, that we can say, oh yeah, I agree on that. Yep, I understand that, they're, that, that, that we should all be responsible for ourselves and that will give us freedom tomorrow, that we should be responsible also and have some empathy for others. Yep, accountability, that's a good one. I can agree with that. Yep, if I agree to say I'll do what I say to you, I'll do, and, and I can expect you to agree on the same thing, that can we can start to bind some social contracts again. We're in a great time of distrust. We don't know who to believe. Uh, our social contracts are broken with each other. We don't have expectations of each other, and that leads to us not having expectations of ourselves. Um, well, that becomes sort of a recipe for some sort of, you know, chaos or, or, or anarchy in a, in, a, in a lonely place. I think that we should really work on breaking down what we consider to be a contradiction, which is the selfish choice and the selfless choice. The choice for I and the choice for we. I don't believe those are as contradictory as we make them out to be. Um, there is a choice, I believe, that you can make that is also best for the most amount of people. There is a choice that I can make that may be the best choice for the most amount of people. Um, we look at responsibility. Now that it takes away my freedom. No, responsibility can actually give us freedom. Uh, it makes it about more than makes our freedom be more than about entertainment. Um, and it leads to a bit of an ascension in life, a bit of an evol uh, evolution uh, for us as individuals and as a culture, as, as people, species. Um, I, I, I think values is the place that people can, can say, Hey, here's my solid stepping stone that I'll, I'll step forward and say, I agree with you where we can have a conversation. I agree with you where we can have a conversation. Now, I mean, I mean, more than anything, I think, uh, Melissa, I just wanted to get to the part where he says, you know, I, I do such a bad Matthew McConaughey, but it leads to a kind of ascension. Like it was, just, you know, but is Matthew McConaughey onto something here and bringing people it's, together? It's better than both of our Bob Dylan. It's better as than we found out I on Twitter yesterday. I didn't think I built that Dylan was that bad. But uh, Melissa, so so is 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 this just like like nonsense from Matthew McConaughey, or is he onto something and finding common ground, common values, and can we actually, as a population, 
meet in the middle and have productive conversations? Or is that, or is this just naive? I don't think it's naive at all. And just before we get into this, thank you for not making me do a Matthew McConaughey impression. I would love to hear it. uh, I I did not prepare for that question. Um, I think that, um, you know, going back to what he said, he talks a lot about social contract and and the, the I and the we not being as far apart as we think. Um, you know, this was one of kind of, we, if we, if we, um, have a lot of sort of conservative free market thinkers, I mean, this was a lot of what Adam Smith, um, talked about as well. And that, you know, one of the great, I, I won't quote him directly, but one of the greatest social goods that we have is all of our sort of desire to, um, be liked and be respected by the people that are around us. And so while we have individual choice, um, and while we should have individual choice and individual autonomy, what binds us within communities and within civil society is thinking about more than just ourselves. And so I think that that, that really is a key conservative principle. And, and what we've seen is a sort of perversion by that. You know, you, you see some of this in the United States, certainly, but the sort of um, taking I is the only thing that matters. And so you see this in um, the sort of deterioration of of some things going on in civil society, of people caring about communities, people caring about other people. Um, And I think that that has a lot to do with the leadership that we've seen. I mean, we see rhetoric coming from the top from President Trump um, that really makes people think that that's okay. And and really, um, it's it's an ill-advised way to live because if we want to um, live peacefully, if we want all of our society to prosper. If we consider that, you know, it's not a zero sum game. If I do well, you can also do well. That's really what creates economic growth. And that's really to his point, what what makes us all be able to be free and, and make those choices. So I think he's absolutely onto something. And I think that if political parties and politicians generally start to listen to some of these people who maybe aren't typically involved in politics. They're just sort of Matthew McConaughey is not a normal person, but I think probably a lot of normal people would agree with that. Um, I think we'll see much more positivity um, and engagement with our politics. Like that's really what this is all about is making politics an exercise that people don't feel intimidated to engage with. and so I think he's absolutely onto something and we should all listen to Matthew McConaughey more as I think the moral of the story. I think we can all agree on something, whether you're far left or far right or anywhere in between, uh, we should all, we could all use a little more Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Melissa Cowett uh, does a great job. First of all, by the way, uh, I, this also, we should, we should let Real Talk viewers and listeners know this is also kind of a soft introduction to you as one of our down the road political panelists. And I'm very much looking forward to being able to host roundtable conversations here in the Real Talk studio. Uh, Once we're through this pandemic, we'll very much look forward to your perspective. There you have it. Uh, This is where we shall gather in person. We have the space for it. Just, you know, a little too much COVID out there. We have the space. It's just the pandemic standing in the way. But Melissa Cowett will certainly look forward to future appearances here on the show. Uh, Melissa, uh, uh, with Canadian Strategy Group, uh, a longtime uh, conservative strategist, uh, expert in government relations and business development there at CSG. Thanks for making time for us this morning. And best of luck with your pandemic passion project. 
Thanks, Ryan, and thanks for having me. It's been fantastic. You got it. That's Melissa Cowett. Give her a follow on Twitter. You'll find her on Instagram as well, and uh, there she provides the link to her blog. We're going to get to the headlines, and then uh, I want to get to a couple of emails, uh, some of you chiming in uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com with some great points, and uh, I want to get to this. I don't want to put big questions out in front of us and then just leave you hanging. Uh, your perspective matters very much to us. Uh, by the way, also wanted to let you know that we've officially launched our first ever get real question of the week powered by the team at Y station. You can find it. You can sign up to be on our real talk panel. Uh, there's no real obligation here. It's just a way for you to tell us a bit more about yourself and let us know how you feel about issues that really matter issues that are important to you. This week's question with everything happening around COVID, how do you plan on celebrating the holidays this year? Just follow the link on my Twitter profile at Ryan Jesperson. You know, these types of shows, we're very grateful that we can make them happen. And, and in part, we're breathing a little easier as we broadcast, thanks to the team at Clean Air Club. Before we even opened the doors on this studio, we reached out to them and said, we want to make sure that air is flowing in here. Now, of course, there's the big building HVAC in here, but what additional measures and steps can we take? So they advised us on our air purification setup here, but they also reiterated the importance of checking and maintaining furnace filters. It's something that I know many of us just, well, they, we let it go by the wayside. We make sure our hand sanitizer is topped up. We make sure we're wearing our masks when we go out. But what about the air in our own home, the air that we're breathing? I won't paint a clear picture. I grossed out a viewer by the name of Claire the other day. She said, when you described what was in the air and what's going in our mouth when we sleep with our mouth, she goes, and I went, okay, I get it. I get it. I was just trying to be effective here in my messaging. Clean Air Club at cleanairclub.ca has you covered. They're going to make the furnace filter replacement process seamless and painless you fill out the information they drop them off at your door they keep you on track they make sure your family breathes easier check out cleanairclub.ca we're going to be talking about that million dollar wayne gretzky rookie card with wayne wagner in just a moment but we wanted to get to the stories that are making news this morning Sam, let's take a look at Alberta's COVID-19 numbers here. Uh, this, uh, per the update yesterday from uh, Medical Officer of Health, Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, 1,700 new cases in the province on Monday. 16 more people uh, died due to COVID. Now 20,000 plus active cases, including almost 9,200 in Edmonton, almost 7,500 in the city of Calgary. Alberta will receive its first shipment of vaccine doses next week, about 3,900 of them. Now you need two shots for it to be effective so that means well cut the number in half about approximately 2,000 people they're going to go first to long-term care centers vulnerable residents and frontline staff there will expect an update from the province now they're figuring out the rollout here after the federal government's announcement uh, Justin Trudeau earlier this week we're also expecting this morning that the provincial government will be making an announcement at some point today that's the expectation, that's the scuttlebutt, that's the word on the street from people who probably have some inside insight here. If it's not happening today, likely tomorrow, but expect Alberta to take a stronger stance on what could resemble a lockdown as early as December 15th. These are the rumors. We'll wait to see what happens. And meantime, the CDC, the U.S. Center for Disease Control, this is interesting, shortened this morning its recommended length of time to quarantine after COVID exposure, 10 days now. If you're not displaying symptoms, but you've come into contact with somebody uh, that has tested positive, seven days now, the recommended quarantine without symptoms and a negative test. 
But here's the thing. The CDC says this will make quarantining easier to follow. Of course, this leading into the holiday season. But the CDC still maintains the safest option is still 14 days. We're going to talk about the pop culture side of the news, this Wayne Gretzky rookie card in just a moment. But I wanted to get to some of the emails that we've been receiving today, including this one from Billy Sims. You know, you can email us anytime by uh, simply uh, reaching out to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Billy says, I'm a longtime listener. I've been here both weeks. Uh, He says, but this is my first email. He says, I wanted to talk about the Matthew McConaughey speech that you've been putting in front of us. I appreciate the sentiment he's conveying. Uh, Billy says, I understand the polarization in American politics, but it lacks nuance. Says McConaughey is equating the far right and the far left as the same in their radicalism. He says they may be equally as far away as uh, as far away from their center, but American centrists would be considered right wing in Canada. He says, my main point is that McConaughey poses a false dichotomy. The far left in the U.S. would be a mainstream party in most first world nations. Billy's about to start a forest fire with our viewers here. He says, while the far right are basically radical nationalists, and I agree with you there. He says, the far left advocates for the things the majority of nations already have. Let's say the left, Billy, not the far left. The far left wants to blow up the economy and spread out the money equally, to speak frankly. But if you say the left advocates for the things the majority of nations already have, social supports for the vulnerable, universal health care, robust environmental policies, fair taxation, I mean, what's fair, and justice reform. Billy's right. He says the far right in the U.S. has embraced conspiracy theories, QAnon, racist, homophobic, and bigoted factions who are influential, anti-immigration sentiments, uh, pushing to rescind rights for LGBTQ2S plus folks and other minorities based on their religion or their ethnicity. He says, although radical left groups do exist in the U.S., they're not mainstream like radical right groups are. Billy says, people may say, well, what about Antifa? He says, let's be honest, Antifa is not a group. There's no organization nor membership. People simply identify as anti-fascist. Billy wonders, shouldn't we all strive to be anti-fascist? Anyway, he says, that's my rant. I don't have Twitter. I deleted it a long time ago, but I may get it back just to comment on the hashtag RealTalkRJ. Billy Sims, if you're back on Twitter, we'd love to hear from you. Of course, that's how anybody can get in touch with the show. That's the hashtag that we keep an eye on. Let's get to this. A very cool story. If you have a Wayne Gretzky rookie card in your possession, you're going to want to pay attention to this next story. Wayne Gretzky, as the Toronto Star writes, about to set another Record. That's right. This week, a mint condition 1979 Opeachy Gretzky rookie card expected to become hockey's first million dollar U.S. collectible card if everything goes as the team at Heritage Auctions thinks it will. Wayne Wagner owns and operates Wayne's Sports Cards and Collectibles. Wayne, thanks for making time for us this morning and welcome to Real Talk. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Always a pleasure, and congrats on the show. You do a fantastic job. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. So t- take us into this story. How how far away is this 79 Opeachy Gretzky rookie card from maybe some of the other 79 Opeachy Gretzky rookie cards that potentially some people watching or listening right now may have in their possession? What's so special about this one? Well, the, the key to this card is the grade. Uh, there's only two known to exist in a 10, which is what this card is. I think it's currently sitting at like $680,000. They're anticipating that it does go for a million plus. Uh, in terms of cards themselves, 
Um, there's numerous cards that have actually sold for over a million dollars. There was a Mike Trout that sold for 3.9 million. Uh, there's been Honus, Wagner, and Mickey Mantle cards that have sold for 2.3 and 2.4 million. Um, so this is going to be the first hockey card that reaches a million dollars. And that's the excitement behind it. But again, the key point to make is this is a high grade card. It is a PSA 10 and there's only two known to exist. And that's why the card's going to get the value that it's getting right now. Okay, but only two known to exist. But, but was that due in part to how it was manufactured? Was there something about these two that might set them apart? Or or is is it possible that somebody ha- even has an unopened pack of 79 Opeachy cards that have never been touched, certainly never damaged, they've never seen the light of day, they've never had a speck of dust on them. Could there be more than two out? See, you got people calling already, Wayne. They're looking to see what already. rookie. They're looking to see what you have here but 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 are is it absolutely is it possible there's more than two yes there there's still cards out there to be graded there's still cards in packs believe it or not there actually still is um packs sealed um of the gretzky year um and those will end up at some point in time probably being opened so yes there's always the potential of more to be opened and more to surface um, but there have been thousands of gretzky cards that have been graded there's only two that have known to exist in the shape, and that's what makes this card so unique. It's not every day that you can just reach into your collection and, and grab your Gretzky rookie and say, hey, I've got a 10 as well. These are very high-quality cards. Um, to answer your question, whether it was done differently, whether it was cut differently printed, no. These were done the same run, the same time. These just happen to be two pristine cards that came off the print. So they would have been uh, probably somebody that the minute they had them, uh, the minute they had the card in their possession, I'm assuming, they would have already been aware of the, what their the oil on their fingers could do to the card. They probably immediately put it in some sort of a protected case, right? I mean, I, I'm stating the obvious here, but but how do you keep a card at 10? Has this been in a safe deposit box the whole time? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, people get lucky. Back in the day, we all know how people handle cards. It was not necessarily collectible for monetary value. It was just a collectible period. Um, so a lot of people either played with them, traded them, uh, you know, flipped them against the wall, put them in their bike spokes. There was all kinds of things. These could simply be cards that somebody did in fact get out of a pack of cards, set aside thinking, Hey, this is Wayne Gretzky's first card and just left it until current day and then sent it in to be graded and fortunate enough to get this 10. Can you imagine? Uh, let me ask you, I want to circle back on something before we get you to show us some cards in, in your collection. And I'm assuming they're for sale, but, but you can tell us Mike Trout, you mentioned he's. Uh, he's currently, I mean, I know he's a big deal and I know he makes a ton of dough, uh, uh, for the LA angels, but what, what makes his card worth? What did you say? $3.7 million. Was there just like one of them? How he's a current player. How is it worth so much? Well, the market has blown up and I could branch into a, di- you know, a ton of different areas here, Ryan. We've got time, um, buddy. We've got lots market, of time. The collectibles market has just blown up and gone kind of crazy. Um, so People are hunting for those treasures, hunting for something that they know they have a potential of uh, making some money off of. I mean, this is still a collectible. People have fun doing it. And I think with COVID and everything we've had to deal with, people have been able to go back. They've had time to re-experience what collecting is all about and, and the enjoyment behind collecting. The monetary or the investment value uh, is now resurfacing to answer your question on the Mike Trout, it was a one one So it was the original or the only card out there. It was graded um, and it went up into auction and was bought for $3.9 million. Now, to show how the market is gone, I believe, and I might get the numbers 
was wrong, but you get the gist of the conversation here. Uh, the card was originally purchased for $400,000, and the guy that bought it, everybody thought he was nuts. They said $400,000 for Mike Trout. This guy's brand new. His rookie card's 2013. You know, you're crazy. He got it graded and then sold it for $3.9 million in an auction. Unbelievable. Uh, we, we've got some comments here on our on our YouTube thread right now. Peter says, I love seeing Wayne on the show. He's a, a darn fine card shop owner. He's my go-to for anything hockey card related. A super nice group of people here. How about this from Deanne who says, my ex has the complete NHL 1979 set of all players, Opeachy, all teams, along with two Gretzky cards. Uh, Wayne, if, if we assume, I mean, geez, there, th- that card could be worth five bucks or the card could be worth a million depending on 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 where it's at but are the is the card out of that 79 uh, like you know Deanne's talking about her ex has the whole set is the Gretzky it's obviously the highlight of that but what would the whole set be worth I mean it's tough for you to say depending on the condition etc everything else let's say if 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 this million dollar Gretzky rookie card was in that same mint condition graded 10 complete set what would the complete set be worth well, <laughs> great question. Unfortunately, the highlight of that set is the Gretzky rookie. Uh, besides that, you've got a Gordie Howe card in there. You've got a Bobby Hall card in there. Uh, there's a Dave Semenko rookie in there. But each of those cards only fetch around $10, $20, $30, $40 for those cards. It's the Gretzky rookie that drives the entire set. So you can imagine, um, you know, if you have a decent shape Gretzky, it's ungraded, but it's an okay shape. That card may be eight hundred to a thousand dollars. The set may only be eleven hundred dollars. Okay, can we can we do some show and tell here, Wayne? We asked you uh, to to just pluck a couple or a few cards at random and uh, show them off to us. Give us a sense of maybe what some of these might be valued at. I just I love these types of conversations. I got boxes and boxes of cards myself. What's the first one you wanted to showcase? Well, on on that note, Ryan. So this one should look familiar to you. It does. There you go. Yep. So Connor McDavid, and, and this is where I want to uh, make the make the point with this. Collecting can be so much fun. It can be done in families. It can be done. And that's how I started. I started when I was four years old. My dad showed me his collection. Uh, you know, whether he assumed it was going to happen, I grabbed the collection, ran to my room, and that was it. They were now mine. Uh, so you could say I stole them from him. Um, but it's it's how it starts and how it how it goes. And you want to enjoy the collecting behind collecting. The monetary value always follows. And and Ryan, great example. Uh, you were fortunate enough to purchase one of those Connor McDavid cards back when it came out. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you paid $150 for the card. Bang on. Uh, those cards now run seven to eight hundred. Really? So it gives you a sense on collectability and you enjoy it because I know you bought it for your son for future. Uh, and there's your monetary return on that card. You can see the in, the investment potential, uh, and it's happening all over the place. Whether it's a Gretzky rookie, a Connor McDavid, a Sidney Crosby, um, you know, switching sports, Mike Trout, uh, Zion Williamson, Doncic, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., uh, Patrick Mahomes. You can go on and on with investment potentials where people are buying because they either like the team like the player and are seeing obviously uh some investment potential behind it wayne you um, you've been in business I'll show this one so oh yeah that's okay. the gretzky rookie oh okay not a 10 um but this is a six so this is the kind of the card that everybody's looking at right now and wants obviously wants to own 
This one's only graded a six, so it has a value of about $2,500 is what this one is worth. Wow. And and how how long would you, like now that, for example, you're you're on the air, you're now on Real Talk, uh, and, and you're reminding people that they can get their hands on a Gretzky rookie card now for about 2500 bucks. how long does that last? Or how many would you have in stock? Or like, do you have 30 of them, or do you have one? Well, right now we have none. That one came from the safety deposit box just for the uh, show. Okay, got um, it, got it. But you... You could see the difference in values between a six, a seven, an eight, a nine, and a ten. There's significant dollar value difference uh, in the cards, and so, that's why, as I said, with that ten, it's why it's going for what it is. Sixes, I don't know how many are graded six in the marketplace, but significantly more, obviously, than two, which is the uh, the ten that we're uh, we're talking about right now. Wayne, can you show us? Can you show us that Gretzky rookie again? And and if you can. Can you give us a sense of where that card might fall short on the quality side? I mean, I mean, from what I can see, and we're using webcams and everything, but you say it's a six. I mean, it looks pretty darn good to me. Where, where, do, where do you find the difference between twenty five hundred and a million dollars? So it's the perfection of the card, and it's it is very difficult to see Ryan uh, with the camera. Um, when they do the grades of the cards, they're looking at everything. They're looking at the corners. They're looking at the edging. Uh, they're looking at surface and scratches on the back. Um, they're looking at blemishes on the card, lines, marks, uh, pen, ink, uh, bubble marks, every single feature. So it's put through quite a test uh, to come out. So this card, uh, I know, has some surface wear and has some corner issues. Uh, and that's what makes it, as I said, you go back to the tent. That is a flawless card. If you look at the card, and, and I think you can zoom in uh, to the auction and kind of take a look. It's basically flawless. The corners are perfect. The centering is perfect. Uh, obviously hard to see the surface in the back because it's encased, but everything about that card is a perfect card, and that's what makes a significant difference between a 6 and a 10. All right. Uh, Wayne, uh, before we thank you for your time, obviously I know that you, you have a business to run here. Um, you So do I understand correctly, you pulled cards out of your personal collection? These are your personal cards out of a safe deposit box? Are, are there a couple other highlights, uh, some of your real favorites you'd like to show us? I, I wish I had more here. I brought a couple just for the show, Ryan. But, you know, anybody who's collected for as long as I have, uh, and there's a lot of collectors out there, uh, you've got quite the collection of stuff that you enjoy looking at. The crying shame of some of it is it is in a safety deposit box and you can't look at it on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, but just knowing you own it at any given time, you walk in there, take it home for a few days and enjoy it. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a few treasures in there. Gordy Howe rookies, Bobby, Bobby Orr rookies, Bobby Hall um, I've got a Terry Sawchuck rookie. So quite a few things that uh, are pretty unique and, and special to me, uh, obviously remembering or knowing how I got them and, and the collection that I built. This is this is probably a personal question. It's like it's like asking somebody what their stock portfolio looks like, which I typically wouldn't do. Uh, but because because I can't help myself, Wayne, um, assuming you have it safely locked away and we're not putting your home address here on the screen. What is the <laughs> single most valuable piece of sports or other memorabilia that you personally own uh i have an autograph sorry not an autograph my mistake i have a game worn Connor mcdavid jersey oh game worn do you, what would that's, what, that's the big ticket what would somebody have to what would somebody have to have to pay you to give that one up 
Um, probably around 12 to 15,000, 12 to 15 grand. Is it true that when an athlete, unless yep. it's verified, obviously with that like little hologram sticker, if an athlete were to sign, in other words, if I were to, uh, let me say, abuse my position with the Edmonton Oilers as their in-game host to get Connor behind the scenes to sign the card, which I actually don't think he would do. I think he's limited in what he can sign, but if I were to get him to scribble his name on the card, I have with a Sharpie marker, uh, and it was my word against anybody else's that it was actually his autograph on that card. Did I actually devalue that card? Yes, in a sense you did. So again, it's it's another whole episode we can get into, Ryan, of branching off into a direction of autographs, authenticity, proof of authenticity. If you take the Gretzky rookie and you actually put pen to the card, the true definition of that card is no bends, no creases, no tears, no ink, no stains. Well, the minute you put ink to it, you have defaced that card. Now, you can send it away and get it authenticated by a company. There's PSA DNA and a couple other companies as well. You can get that autograph authenticated. And if it comes back as, yes, in fact, that is a Gretzky autograph, um, you have helped the value of your card, but you really have removed a lot of people who just want the card as it is meant to be. It came out of the pack on autograph. They want it on autograph. So you remove yourself from actually selling that card to the potential of people that are out there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Wayne, we've got uh, viewers like Bosno, listeners like Julie right now wondering, do you, they say we, we, we've got some things we want to have authenticated or we want to have them graded or we want to have them appraised, uh, but they're nervous to send them away. You don't personally offer that service, do you? You send your own stuff away, right? You know, and it, it, it's a question we get every day. Um, it is something that an individual can do on their own. We do not offer the service um, just for the fear of obviously that the item going missing, uh, you know, heaven forbid we have a Gretzky of that nature in our hand that has a potential of getting a nine or 10 and the card goes missing in the mail. Uh, that's going to be on us for providing the service. So we encourage people. It, it is a pretty safe process. Um, you know, the two main companies to look at are Beckett and PSA. I would just suggest contacting them for, you know, your security or for your, you know, self-assurance of, of where your card is going and what's happening. And they'll walk you through the whole process. It is a pretty simple, pro easy process. There is a fee for it, obviously. Um, but, you know, we just re recommend everybody do it on their own. It's the safest and, and easiest thing to do. Interesting question here from Fatima, who wonders, would players have copies of their own cards? Would that be part of a deal? Would players, I mean, do players have to go track down their own cards or their own McFarland figurines or whatever else? Or, or, or are they issued uh, mint? I mean, does Connor McDavid have a mint Connor McDavid rookie? You have to assume so. Well, great question. And, and that is another question we get on a regular basis. Do players get their cards? I will tell you in the past, I'm going to assume they did from the companies because it wasn't like it is today. Uh, current market, no. Uh, I don't think they get any of their cards because a lot of the cards are numbered. They have, uh, you know, a Future Watch Rookie, which is from SP Authentic. They're numbered at a 999. Those cards all have to enter the pack. So the players do not get their cards. They have to purchase them like anybody else. There are a lot of collectors out there. I know Patrick Waugh is a huge card collector. At one point in time, there was a story on how many cards he actually owned of himself. But he just went out there and kept purchasing, purchasing, purchasing. And obviously, knowing how good he is, quite an investment for him. Well, exactly. That's like if you know you're good. If you know you suck, you're not investing in your cards, right? <laughs> I was going to start naming players, but that's that's a horrific is idea. That, is that basically just making a bet on your future it, career? Bet, like I'm going to collect my own cards because they might be worth something. That's exactly yeah. right, Wayne. That's exactly. It's betting. It's betting on yourself. But, and we do have a lot of players. There are 
plenty of players that actually come in our shop and they buy their own cards. They're looking for cards either to give away to family members. And it's a lot of the young kids too. We get some of the uh, the Oil Kings in here and some of the uh, you know younger Edmonton Oilers players wanting to buy those cards so they can hand them out to family and friends. Well, I don't, I, I just, uh, we're not here to do a big advertisement for you, Wayne, but it's my pleasure to do exactly that. Let me, let me tell a quick story, which you played a, a part in, um, and then we'll let you get back to running your business. Uh, but you may remember that I came in there a couple of years ago, a buddy of mine down in Calgary, who by the way, watches this show. So Piercy, good morning to you. He's a huge fan of the Kamloops Blazers. He grew up in Kamloops and he's a huge fan of Rob Brown. Uh, you remember uh, Mario Lemieux's former trigger man. And I came into you and Absolutely. I said, and, and, and Robbie's just a beautiful guy. And, and I knew he'd have no problem signing a card. So I came into you. Do you remember this Wayne? And I asked, do you have any, I, Ro- I said, do you have any Rob Brown cards? And you, you found me like, 10 different cards of Rob's. I bought them all. I don't think I cleaned you out. I think you still have many more. Rob signed them all, sent them to Piercy, and it blew his mind. So it's not like you just have the Gretzkys and the Lemuse and the Crosbys. Uh, you've got an incredible offering there. Absolutely. And and Rob Brown cards, I'll tell you, they actually are hard for us to keep in stock because he does a lot of coaching here in the city of Edmonton. So we do have a lot of the kids, the parents of the kids coming in here and cleaning us out. So there are a few players like that. Jason Strudwick is another one. Um, we get cleaned out a lot of those cards because they're in here doing coaching. Ryan Smith was another one we actually just got decimated with because everybody was buying Ryan Smith cards. So amazing, um, you know, players like that just because they're local and and very accessible to uh, to the fans. Yeah, and just total beauties, uh, just like you, Wayne yeah. Wayne Wagner, the owner of Wayne Sports Cards and Collectibles, obviously knows what he's talking about, and we're grateful you've given us 25 minutes of your time uh, here on a business day. So thanks for this. Always my pleasure, Ryan. Appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. Wayne, you can tell why I'm a big fan of his and, and obviously a great dude. Um, talking about sports and hockey, Sam, you know you know the video I want to throw to? I know we're kind of a day late on this. We wanted to show this to you yesterday, but we just we ran up. You're not even going to believe me if I say we ran up against the clock because there is no clock. But we felt like it was time to end the show yesterday on the there, note There we is did. a clock. We just don't follow there it. There is a clock. A we clock just... exists in the room. <laughs> yes, this is true. Yeah, that is true. Uh, this is amazing. This is uh, a news broadcast. They were doing a weather story. You, you may have seen this already. I just absolutely love this. Uh, you know what streeters are like when reporters are doing a streeter. So they go out and they just talk to people on the street. It is what it sounds like. You know, this man thinks that the city needs to do a better job of snow plowing or this lady's upset that the city doesn't have a mask bylaw or whatever. So check out this weather report, which aired on the biggest news station in Boston, uh, home of the Bruins, who this guy certainly played for for a little bit. This is amazing. Not necessarily. This might be a little too much. Visibility was poor on the highways as heavy snow came down for a few hours. Getting around was a challenge, even for those who are used to this. Pretty tough. Uh, we're from Canada, so it's not too crazy. I mean, uh, we got some winter tires and uh, used to this growing up, so um, it's not great. I'll tell you, you get some, uh, some tough stretches, but if you don't go too fast, uh, uh, it's doable. This man from Canada finds it perfectly. <laughs> oh, you mean the Hall of Famer, Jerome McGinley, two-time Olympic gold medalist, Art Ross winner, Rocket Richard winner, and former Boston Bruin? Is that nah, who you're Nah, he's just Jerome from Calgary. That's all <laughs> he is. Jerome from St. Albert. Yeah, there we uh, go. <laughs> Jerome from St. Albert finds the snow not too bad because he has winter tires. Back to you in studio. <sighs> 
We might as well just say 10.30. Nah, we don't want to nail our feet to the floor. But here we are again, four minutes away from 10.30 on another extended edition of Real Talk. Another bang-up job by show senior producer Sam Brooks. Want to remind you again to check out my Twitter profile and sign up as a Real Talk panelist. We want to hear what you have to say each and every week as we launch this morning officially our Y Station Get Real question of the week. You'll find it at twitter.com slash Ryan Jesperson. It's where you can find me on Instagram as well. Thanks for being a part of the conversation today. Keep the comments coming on Twitter at Real Talk RJ. Tell everybody about our podcast and we'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 8.30 Mountain Time. The gun away.